and welcome. You're listening to the Safety and Health Podcast by Safety and Health Practitioner. I'm your host, Ian Hart, and I'm the editor of SHP. On this episode, we're going to take a look back at two recent SHP webinars, hearing some highlights from eight great practitioners on their views on leadership and safety culture. First up, we take a look at leadership and safety leadership. On the panel was Alistair Davey, Global Vice President HSE at Sodexo, Malcolm Staves, Corporate Health and Safety Director at L'Oreal, Louis Montenegro, former VP Global Health Safety at Carlsberg Group, and Steve Hoff, President at Solar Protect UK and EU. I began the session by asking Malcolm Staves to explain his thoughts on whether there is a difference between leadership and safety leadership. I sort of struggled with this question because the first thing that came to my mind, uh, what is leadership? And I sort of looked around because I actually don't know what a definition of, of leadership is. I certainly don't think leadership or being a leader is something you give to yourself as a title. I think it's something that others say and look at somebody and say, that person is a leader, that person I want to follow. So I struggled and I've read books on leadership and very often they have their own definitions of leadership and it changes. I know what leadership isn't. And I just want to sort of share this with everybody. It's nothing to do with seniority for me. It's nothing to do with where you sit in the line management, how high you are within an organization. And it's nothing to do with your title. And it's not about management. I think management is totally different to leadership. Because managers, from my point of view, we manage things. We manage processes. We manage risk assessments. We manage behavioral-based safety programs or whatever. When it comes to being a leader, it actually is what it says on the can. It's actually leading people. But you can only lead people if they choose to be led by you. So it's it's sort of very complicated. And the definition that I like the most and just what I want to share with you is the one that says that leadership is a process of social influences, which maximizes the efforts of others towards achievement of common goals. That's the one that I personally like. You don't see that very often. As I said, you you see different things. And then when you look at types of leadership, which I think is important as well to frame the question, if I can, and I'm going to list a few that I've come across. It's like we've all heard of them. Courageous, influential, servant, authentic, autocratic, democratic, transformational, coach, visionary. And it goes on and on and on and on. To me, just simply leadership. Okay. It's how you put in place systems, how you deal with people. And a leadership style should change as a function of the people that you're wanting to influence, people that you're talking to. And I think if you take that approach of this is what leadership is, if you then apply it to leadership in safety, and I've changed the title around a little bit because I don't believe in safety leadership, okay? I don't see things, it's called accounting leadership, engineering leadership, and whatever else you want to think, you know, doctor leadership, etc. I think when you look at those types of leadership styles and the way you may apply them in your own work environment to get the best out of people. When I talk to people in my team and other people, my leadership style, for want of an expression, if I am a leader, changes with individuals to get the best out of them. Don't we do the same in safety? For me, I know people that talk about safety leadership, and I I correct them from my perspective, my personal point of view. Yes, safety in leadership, 
as a subset of leadership, you are. But I definitely don't think there's any difference. I think what makes you a leader is important. And I asked myself, what do I expect from a good leader? It certainly was being honest and open, authentic. I need to trust that person. It needs to be somebody that I can share my concerns with and they can give me coaching and feedback to try and help me understand the situation, make the right decision. They need to be a good listener. They also need to give people credit where credit is due and not take the credit for themselves. And they need to be, from my point of view, good communicators. So if you put all that and say, what does that mean with respect to occupational health and safety professionals? For me, it's exactly the same. It's nothing about being an expert in safety. It's nothing about that. It's how you move people that are around you, how you influence them to go forward. Louise, can I bring you in here? How important is engagement and communication when it comes to leadership? And what's your thoughts on this opening question? Maybe I would like to start with a quote from Malcolm when you say, it's not about us saying that we are leaders. People have to choose to follow us. And this is all about trust, and trust is something you earn. So I certainly agree that there's no difference. It's all about leadership. If you're able to communicate clear the direction, if you're able to inspire people, really engage them for joining, let's say, the cause, if they believe in the purpose of what we're doing, then engagement happens, and then they will trust you and follow your ideas. This is a way of looking at leadership, in my opinion. Indeed, we do manage a number of processes. We even manage people, if you may say, but that's not what will drive us forward in the direction that we want the culture of safety to evolve. So any good leader, as they are perceived as such, they are capable of inspiring people. They are capable of communicating well. They are able to engage people for the objectives, for the cause they're fighting for, right? And it can be anything related to the business or even related to other non-business issues, but certainly applies exactly the same way to safety. So if the good leader recognizes those things, he will be able to communicate clearly and engage people, not only for generic business goals, but absolutely for safety as well. Alistair, do you have any uh, any comments on this? It's interesting, and I agree with the comments the other speakers have made about leadership and what makes a good leader. I guess it's interesting to go back to, you know, Malk's opening comments around the difference between leadership and safety leadership. And I, and I kind of have a slightly different spin on that, I guess, because I think it is possible to lead and disregard safety. So I think we do see that distinction and it is socially acceptable often to do that. And we can look around the world today and see some very high profile leaders who are leading with really no regards to safety. So for me, that's about social attitudes, about maturity of society and understanding safety and the importance of safety. And that fundamentally we're here, you know, we're all here for people. Everything we do should be really centered around people because that's our core interest. You know, we'd never ask the question of a CEO about his or her financial leadership. It's just assumed, but we're not at that point with safety. So that's quite interesting for me. I'm very interested in what organizations and people say and the words they use. And if you look at the Harvard MBA course syllabus uh, last week, just scrolled through it, you know, and the word safety doesn't appear once. There is this real gap. If you look at some of our world-leading technology companies that are shaping the future of the world today, look at their websites, often you'll see no mention of the word safety. So, Alistair, if we're talking about influence, how, as your job as a leader, how do you go about creating leaders within your teams, whether that's field technicians, operators, first-line supervisors, or your senior leadership team? 
how does your job come to create those leaders? I think, first of all, you know, we do come back to leadership. It is really at the heart of this. And I'm talking about, you know, top level. I think in my experience, you need that top level leadership support of the entity that you're trying to build all these things that you just talked about. Your top leaders need to understand essentials of, of safety and what it is. And they need to understand their role, which is around proactively creating a safety culture in the organization. And if you haven't got your leaders in that space where they understand that they've got that role and that they influence that, then effectively your culture gets built through random incidents and accidents and how you respond to those. You know, So I think as OSH leaders, we've got a big role to play around having a vision, shaping a strategy, identifying you know, what is the culture we want to have, what do we want the organization to look like in the future, and how do we get there? We're like a guide, so that's the big picture. But then in terms of how you make that happen, to your point around field employees, technicians, operators, starts with accountability. So it's, it's critical that we understand that line management are accountable for, for health and safety. And when I mention the word safety, I'm always thinking about health as well. I think the two are, go hand in hand, they're inextricably linked. We can't talk about one without the other. But critical that those accountabilities are clear, that people understand that they're responsible, and you also help them to understand what they need to do. And I think the other point I'd make, we can go into lots of details about how you do this in practice, which we may want to, but the other point I'd make is linking it with professionalism. Your organization, your, your frontline team supervisors, and technicians, operators need to understand that if they want to be professional at their job, do a good job for the company, part of that is being safe and taking into account health and safety. You cannot do a professional job without taking into account health and safety. So those would be you know, some of the key call-outs I'm thinking about as you ask the question here. Steve, you mentioned field operatives and, and, and uh, frontline technicians earlier when you were speaking. And what would your advice be and how would you go about creating leaders? For me, and again, it's just from a personal experience, it's part of that making sure that those people who are in leadership positions already do understand what the nature of their responsibility is. So speaking about a practical example, it takes a lot of effort. That's the truth of it. You know, you've got to put the time in and the effort in, in communicating to people and spending time with them to understand where they're coming from as well. I know everyone probably on the webinar will know that that takes time and takes effort and it's a lot of energy, but it really is one of the only ways of doing it. My own experience of this is, you know, like I say, dealing with field-based operatives and dealing with the leaders of their teams was about going and spending time with 20, 30 field-based leaders in their own patches of the UK and listening to what they got to say. And they all had slightly different things to say as to what their challenges were. So. You can't do a one-size-fits-all. Yes, there are corporate and company goals, but it's the translation of that into what really makes sense to people as well and what they're facing. So they do truly feel that they've been listened to and engaged. And I think someone else mentioned earlier, I think it was uh, Luis around trust. I think by doing that, that's how it made a big difference because people felt they had a personal investment in making those changes happen. And I think the other part of that that came from it was certainly listening to each other's agendas on that as well. So helping that leader to solve their local issue meant that you had got that rapport and relationship and buy-in for them to hear your message and to come along for the ride with you really and start to make a difference to their people. You know, we've mentioned it again, it can be quite, you know, buzzwords around engagement, but it does all start with that for me in helping managers at all different levels some of the really hard people to crack are some of the people who've been there the longest. But equally, you've got to treat people differently who are just coming into those roles to really help understand what their 
their accountability and responsibilities to their people. You know, another reflection I have, just moving into present day, really, because that example's from a while ago, is I couldn't agree more with health and safety. You know, the health part that we have certainly seen through the pandemic has really changed. It's definitely been a lot more about people working from home, in our case. They're facing different challenges and therefore educating our managers on what the risks are, what the extra effort needs to be, hasn't just been, have you done an assessment for someone working at home? It hasn't been, you know, have you asked them, are they working on their own and are they safe? It's actually been around isolation, mental health. I think to share a kind of anecdote, I suppose, lots of people think working from home in the current climate, you know, previous to this was a bit of a privilege and it was quite easy. Actually, our experience has been a lot of people haven't really enjoyed it. They found it to be very isolating and quite challenging. And so we've spent a lot more time doing other things with people to make sure they still feel connected to the business. So the health definitely goes with the safety part of that equation for me. I couldn't agree more on that. You're listening to highlights of SHP's webinar about whether there is a difference between leadership and safety leadership. To listen back to this session in full, click on the link in the episode description. Talking about working from home, I heard it described as we're not working from home, we're at home working. And actually, it's, it's about how managing the situation that, that we're in, which I thought was quite an interesting way of, of describing it. Malcolm, can I bring you back in on this? You obviously work for a huge multinational organisation and we're talking about developing and creating leaders. It's obviously very important to you that you have trust and are able to develop and create those leaders across your different sites all over the globe. What advice have you got on this subject? It's a difficult one because I think leadership is a journey as well. I mean, we're not just born with leadership. I think it's something we learn as we go along. And because people are in a different stage of the journey, people our leaders in different way. I remember many, many years, I was much more autocratic. I was a line manager, plant manager, and my style of management was totally different than it is today. And at the same time, the style of leadership and, and has to adapt to the social situation where we live. We're a great believer that every single person can be a leader. Every person is a leader. They might not be a leader at work, but they may be a leader on the football field. They may be a, a leader in society, etc. So you have to find that thing that pushes the button to make them want to be a leader. And I think it goes back to, they need to understand the why. Why should they be leading, especially in something like safety? I mean, because it, it just makes total sense. But sometimes people don't get it or they, they have other priorities that they just don't show their leadership. So I'm a great believer and we are of giving people the why the safety is important and why being a safety leader and looking after other people around you, your colleagues, your work friends, it's a matter of changing the mindset. But you can't force somebody to be a leader if they don't want to be a leader. It's hard work and it's very personal. Malcolm, I want to bring you in a little bit. What do you see as being the future of the OSP profession and its leaders? And tying into that, we had a question in from Tiago here. Do you think the pandemic will change the way people look at OSP professionals moving forward? The first and the big reply to Tiago is uh, yes, of course. But I think it also needs the OSP professional to be able to take advantage of that rather than you know not going back under the stone not doing things like they've always wanting to do things like they've always been done being the dinosaur but saying okay there is an opportunity but i need to change as well i need to be a different osh professional we're also converting our audit programs into remote 
training programs are being converted to remote. There are some training programs, to be honest with you, you need the face-to-face, you need the human interaction, which you can only get. But as an OSH professional, you need to be visionary now looking towards the future. Take advantage of the fact that it's now a bigger H. Take advantage of that because that's going to get you to go back to what what Stephen Louise says. That's going to get you in with a C-suite as well now. It is the moment that opens up the door. And then you bring the other stuff in as well. The door's open. Use it. Don't let the door close back again if you work for that kind of organization. The other thing that's important as well, and I think we've been talking about it a little bit, is all about the big thing for many, many years has been that everybody calls the sustainability agenda. The sustainability agenda that really looks at environmental sustainability, biodiversity, etc. We need to put health and safety back into that because it's all about people. We need to put people back into the centre and it will only happen if the OSH professionals take advantage of that, speak the right kind of language and drive to put people back into sustainability. So it's not just about the environment. Sustainability, as it was originally, included people, included the health and safety. And lots of companies have uh, lost their way in that. So that, for me, is the future. The other thing that's important for the OSH professional is... It's not all about being military anymore, top-down, rules and regulations, risk assessments. You need to stay expert. They need to stay as an expert. But you need to learn the business skills or the soft skills. When you talk to the CEO, you need to be able to speak his language and speak the language that has an impact on him. On the other hand, when you go speak to an operator or a field agent, you need to change your language the way you talk to them. You want to be successful and you want to really make an impact in your organization, that's what we need to do. And we're at a crossroads, and it's up to us as a profession to decide whether we want to take advantage of that or not. It's a moment of truth. So, Louise, I come first. Can you just give us your quick single take home? What we need to remember is that this pandemic gives us a room of opportunity and a number of learnings that we should take forward. It will take us a different leadership style or mindset carry on with the positive changes we've seen, much more on inspiring and engaging rather than command and control. We must remember that people will follow what they believe in. So let's always remember that compliance must be purpose-driven. And last and very important is that people are capable of cooperating to each other and achieving excellent business results without the traditional old-fashioned supervision. So it's a great opportunity for us to enhance self-managed teams and have them also taking care for the safety of themselves and the others around them. Thanks, Louise. Alistair, your, your take home from the session? I think I'll probably just go back to the beginning of the question we started with around leadership. And we keep coming back to, you know, nothing is more important than leadership, actually. And we need behaviours and we need processes. You know, we need culture and we need processes to be successful in, in health and safety and in business. And if you're only going to do one thing, you know, if you've only got the option to do one thing, I would say, think about what you can do with leadership, because that's where you're going to have the most impact. And take every opportunity you can. I mean, coronavirus is just one opportunity. I'm not quite as strong as Malcolm. I don't think it is, you know, the turning point. I think it's an opportunity. There are many, many opportunities for all of us every day. We're going to take those opportunities to influence and move the ball forward. But it all does all come back to leadership. So, yeah, very good topic. Thanks, Alistair. Malcolm? Going back to uh, the leadership aspect, 
I think at the end of the day, it's, it's more of advice for those people out there that are in the early stages of the journey. It's be yourself, huh? Just be yourself and look to where you want to be in the future and what you need to develop in order to develop your leadership. And there's lots of stuff out there. There's no right way to do leadership. You just find your own way. So do that. And as you do that and as you start to change organizations where you work and save lives, at times it's difficult. Part of being a leader is also don't give up. Keep the faith, keep on going, because the world needs occupational health and safety professionals like you guys. People deserve to go home safely, so just don't give up. Be yourself. Look to the future. That's, I think, the biggest thing that I'd want to share with everybody out there. Finally, Steve? Yeah, actually, following on from that, I think for me, and I've been looking through the questions that have been coming in as well, and it's so kind of inspiring to see how engaged everyone is in making things safer for their people. I think overridingly for me, and certainly from what we've seen as an organisation, my advice or my takeout would be to not lose the opportunity to keep the momentum going. COVID's one thing. I think Malcolm said it earlier around the next thing could happen. Don't lose that opportunity with the work that's been done and, and let this sort of stuff dissipate away. So it's a golden opportunity to review what you're doing and to make your working environments for people a safer place rather than going back to business as usual once things start to return to normal because you know if anything as COVID's taught us particularly it's you can prepare but when these things happen you have to react and you have to do something different and I think there's a lot of learnings that have come out for organizations around the welfare and safety of their people so I would say don't let this really difficult time lose the opportunity to keep your momentum going. Some really interesting take-home points there. Malcolm described it as a moment of truth for the safety profession, and this is a common theme with people that I speak to regularly for SHP, as well as the panel here. It's about how the profession and the people within it grasp that moment and look to move forward. Next up, we revisit a session on safety culture. On the panel was Professor Tim Marsh, Chartered Psychologist and MD at Anchor and Marsh, Dr. Karen McDonnell, OHS Policy Advisor at ROSPA, Kevin Gilroy, Environmental Health and Safety Specialist at Kevin Gilroy Creative Culture Change, formerly EHS Manager Avery Dennison, and Scott Gaddis, VP Global Practice Leader EHS at Intellects Technologies. Let's join this webinar highlights package with me asking Tim Marsh for his advice on implementing a successful safety culture. It depends, doesn't it? Because we don't know what the culture is that we're trying to change, where it's weak, where it's strong, what the strategy is. Our own view of what a strong culture is, is that the best cultures probably hit diminishing returns in terms of systems, procedures, training, standards, safety management systems, and so on. And the best cultures therefore pick up on the holes in that as they recur on a day-to-day basis, on a week-to-week basis. New weaknesses arrive every week and and a really good learning approach to that is required so the first thing i'd recommend any organization do is to read up on matthew saeed's book black box thinking which really explains very clearly the vital importance of a strong learning focus and then after that it's back to good old Carnegie, because i think the second strand of a really strong culture or the third strand if you take systems out is an empowering culture an engaging culture where individuals are actually empowered 
to A, look after themselves and their colleagues, and B, take an active involvement in anything positive and proactive that the organization is trying to do. And so all organizations say it's okay to challenge, it's okay to be challenged, regardless of whether that's about safety or mental health issues and so on. But actually doing that is an incredibly difficult thing. And setting a culture where people are comfortable doing that feel empowered to do that is a different issue entirely. So good old-fashioned transformational leadership means coaching, not telling, praising, not criticizing. It means leading by example. We're always leading by example at all times, whether we want to be or not. So probably a good idea to do that well. And finally, communicating. Excellent two-way dialogue and all the safety differently stuff comes in here, of course, where you're asking questions in the right way. So asking why something has happened, but curiously, and I think this multi-million selling book actually just, just happened to have it on the table, Carol Dweck's Mindset, what she says is the very best boss she ever worked for asked two questions and two questions only. The first one was, why is that happening? And when that was answered well, the second question was, okay, what are we going to do about it? And I think a culture that is absolutely rooted on that mindset won't be going far wrong. If you go into an organisation or if you've got a safety culture in place existing, how do you go about changing that and potentially you know, obviously looking to improve that? Do you have any tips and advice for changing an existing safety culture within an organisation? And I would recommend that first, you know, if you really do want to change culture, is that you look at your management system. ISO 45001 seems to be a great benchmark now. It's very complete. It's very performance-based. It's how you use that information. And I believe there's four areas And I've been using these same four areas for almost my entire career, is that I think if you really do want to have a positive effect on culture, start with compliance. And I think that every practitioner understands this, that we have to have a safe and healthy work environment for our employees to be able to do their work efficiently and safely. So I think compliance is certainly an area that you need to continue to work on. It's a journey and you meet culture where it is. But I think another big important part of this is capability development and resource capacity. One side of that is how much do our employees know? How much does the worker know? And that's knowledge and skill. But I think maybe even an equal part of that that's important is how much do they give back to the organization? And that's all about capacity, is that the thing about culture and, and dislodging weak culture for strong culture is that you're wanting to be your brother's keeper, which we've already mentioned, and that's resource capacity. How much do I give back to the organization? I think management involvement and accountability is huge. I spend a lot of my time working with management teams because I do believe that there is a huge part of culture that starts at the very top of the organization. So there has to be accountability in a management team. And then finally, this thing we do call behavior But I look at that as mid-level managers, supervisors, coaching, mentoring, and then driving expectation of how you want the organization to act. Karen, when you're going about making changes to existing safety cultures, it is important to have the trust of your workforce on board before you start implementing those changes. The importance of having a consistent approach in developing systems and approaches within your organisation. So to identify what the issues are, to decide what you're going to do in a collegiate fashion, and then really stick at it long enough until you do make a difference, you know, so that people see that there is a beginning, a middle and an end to tackling particular issues. From my perspective, we've endeavoured to avoid doing over the last period of time is talk about stopping things. You know, because stopping and starting initiatives in organisations can be a challenge. So we've been encouraging 
within our network for people to pause, to pause and prioritise your people on this whole person, whole life basis to see them as they come through the door or the virtual door that we're all working through at the moment to try and really handle on how they are feeling about where they fit in the organisation. To assess the risk of exposure to COVID, but not to forget other hazards and risks in your business to what's going on around about you. Identify some key messages, again, working in partnership with your teams, and then really knowing when to push and re-push the comms to make sure that consistent approach is managed across the business. There's certainly a lot of noise around and about occupational safety and health at the moment, and I'm not quite sure, you know, the pressures on professionals, if it's COVID plus or it's what the day job is plus COVID, but there's definitely pressure on professionals to deliver. And I think it's about drowning out the noise without losing the impact of all the work we've put in over the years within organisations develop these conditions that, and I'm quoting somebody else here, but I can't remember who, that create conditions for people to thrive. And I think that's what the focus should be at the moment. Kevin, do you have anything to share about how you've implemented that at Avery Dennison? Um, obviously, in a manufacturing setting, how have you overcome that with people coming back into a potentially dangerous environment and not being purely focused on making sure we stay three metres apart, actually being aware of the, of the other dangers around the site? Our site, production-wise, has operated all the way through. We had some workers, office staff who work from home, but are mainly back at work now. What we did, we have a programme where we go through, it's basically an induction to get the guys to understand what has changed while they've been away and how different the site looks from when they've been there, how their workstation's different and what protocols have been put in place that they have to work for. So it's to get them up to speed on things before they get back to work. But also to understand that the hazards that were there originally are still there and the, those controls are still there. It's an additional hazard to manage when we're talking about COVID. So we just do lots of pre-work, things like this, webinars, conference calls virtually, with lots of pictures, diagrams, walk them through. And then when they get on site, it's a staged approach so that no one's over the top of each other when they get here. But they know before they get on site how different it looks. And then again, the conversations were for. And we also do a lot. Tim mentioned health. We have a big mental health program with Avery. So we have mental health first aiders on site and a guy trained further who manages that. So even through the COVID, we've been doing lots of stuff on running mindfulness sessions online for people at home. Day sessions, we do that again online or we'll do it with people separated at work. And then we also go through on the induction that obviously people, as I mentioned, have anxieties. And if there's anything they need to talk about, let we know. And it doesn't have to be physical or related to their job. If it's just something outside mentally that they're struggling, we, we need to know about it because we can manage that. We try and look at the whole thing. We're not perfect by any means, but at least they know a lot of people do think about things differently and just try to put their minds at ease but do a lot of online training, like I say, mindfulness to, to help that. You're listening to highlights of SHP's webinar about safety culture. To listen back to the session in full, click on the link in the episode description. I'll come to you first and then over to you, Tim, on this one. We've spoken about implementation and changes to safety culture, but how should you go about influencing at board level in order to implement your ideas? Have you got any tips for us on that? The C-suite is always an interesting journey for all of us. You know, some of us will, uh, will, will enter that room. Some of us will not. 
But what will these business benefits be, I think, is that first thing that we have to think about. When you talk about the C-suite, it's all about profit, right? So will this save the company money? Will it be a, a cost avoidance? Or actually, will it add to the bottom line? So at this level, I think it's good to bring up current events like changing regulations. I think one of the things that, especially now, and uh, how I've been uh, discussing with clients of intellects is the current pandemic. We're seeing safety and health and environmental professionals thrust into leadership position and actually some of those entering the C-suite for the first time. So, you know, it's the pandemic, it's the cost of the infrastructure, it's actually how we use data differently. I would say, you know, kind of generally, the C-suite level leaders, they talk about strategy to make a profit. Any situation that requires buy-in from senior management, communication is where we start. And I think that starts with a business case. And for EHS and especially safety and health, is there an ROI that you can share? I think the pandemic has certainly allowed us some positive territory to talk about cost avoidance, but you have identified one or more operational weaknesses, then of course, it's time to get right to the matter. So when I think about this and how I've done it is that injuries cost money, especially here in North America, where we have a workers' compensation system. It's easy for me to track workers' compensation and report those results to the C-suite. Now, it's not as easy around other parts of the world, but look at medical costs and what your experience is. Are you in control? Are you out of control? Run loss, run reports, you know, medical, are you seeing litigation? I think safety and health fines are increasing. We see that even in the current administration in North America, they still continue to increase. I know that since 2015, we've seen citations increase almost 80%. So we do see a heavy compliance, even in the current administration, toward bigger fines. EHS and safety and health, I think that we're seeing a lot of public sustainability pressure, right? There's a moral obligation that we do certain things in public and that safety and health and environmental programs are a real important part of that. What I've seen with younger employees, especially, is that employees are leaving companies that don't value safety and health. And I think that that will only continue to get worse as these new generations of workers come into play. The last three things I would say is ISO management systems are becoming very common. They were once warded off in North America. We're seeing those come into play because they're very robust systems and companies are starting to, uh, to benefit from using them. So it's not an uncommon thing to uh, have that discussion in the C-suite. Data management is certainly becoming more complicated. I know a lot of you are suffering. I see some of the, the questions that you're answering. Some of this is purely because all your data is siloed, right? And how do you understand all of this data? Same thing is happening in the C-suite. And how do we communicate that information to them? I think you've got to start looking at it in a digital fashion. And then I think content, right, is pushing our solution of culture into a learning situation. So you're going to have to train, you know, the C-suite in what you actually want to see them value. Karen, let's just bring you back in now. We've talked about how to create and implement a successful culture. We've talked about how to get the board on side once you've come up with that plan. Do you have any practical tips for how to get buy-in for a safety culture initiative from the workforce itself? I think it's important that you continue to update risk management plans in terms of prioritising your people and assessing risk. But I think it's really important to find ways of supporting your people to speak up finding out who people really listen to within the organisation 
and make sure they're equipped with the right types of messages that keep people safe. I think there's a wider piece here to be considered about creating the right messages, making sure that you communicate the right messages to people. We've seen lots of different types of messages communicated across the world in relation to COVID and the COVID noise I've alluded to already. When we talk about traditional managing health and safety in organisations, we do have these risk management plans and then we would evaluate the impact of the changes you've made in relation to that plan. I think there's an interesting piece to be done around and about finding what messages fit for your organisation and then evaluating the impact of those messages on improving the culture, reducing accident frequency rates, increasing engagement rates with the messages. I think there's an age appropriateness with messages also. I know that young drivers are a specific target audience for organisations around the world and getting the messages right for them that they will listen to and modify their driving behaviours accordingly is a very precise science. So I think that perhaps in Oshworld there's an opportunity to look at the types of messaging that we're pushing out and the difference that sharing those messages actually make. Kevin, can I bring you in there? You talked earlier about communication and how important is it around the good communication and the right choice of language when you're trying to get buy-in from the workforce? It's absolutely key. It's not just language, it's understanding what the guy on the shop floor, because I can sit and write with the shop floor, we have as many procedures, policies, protocols, we've got to get into their heads and they have to do things the right way because they want to do it. We have guys who've worked for 40 years on our site, and I'm sure many people on this webinar will be the same. They've done it the same way all their life, never been hurt, not going to hurt me. Their perception is they're going to be fine. So their perception of the consequence, they'll be fine. So we have to change that. We do things to try and get them to think differently about safety. An example being, I mean, if everyone on this call now was to look on their mobile phones and see what their screensaver is, I would say 90% is going to be family or a hobby or a, you know, a loved one, a pet, something like that. So we ran a campaign where we asked people, why do you do safety? Send me your screensaver from your phone. My favourite one was a guy's screensaver was a bottle of beer, it is Newcastle, a passport, an airline ticket, a pair of sunglasses. That was his screensaver. Another guy at his shift, it was his two children, and another guy in his shift, it was a fishing rod. He likes to go fly fishing. So when I talk about those guys, I have three very different conversations. If I want to talk about don't put your hands in the machine, I tell one guy you can't pick a beer bottle up if you've got no thumbs. I tell the other guy you can't go and throw a ball to your child if you've lost your hand. And I tell the other guy you can't pick up a fishing rod if you haven't got that. I'm talking extremes there, but the point I'm making is, is to, why do you do it? You do it for your family or for your loved ones, or for all the things we love outside of work. Work is a means for us to enjoy life. And we did that, and if a whole shift sent their photographs in, they had a meal delivered, a pizza, or Indians, what have you, we, we posted them all over the site. The leadership team, we had ours on our office doors. This is why I do it. Mine was my wife and my two children. And it's things like that to get into people's heads. Why do you do it? There was one way we were talking about keeping your focus. We had a few accidents going by so i got a ford focus car from a local dealership and we put all our logos over the side of it at the gatehouse and then i went around to the local scrapyard and i got a similar ford focus car and we smashed it up by dropping it from the magnet and we parked it next to the one at the gatehouse against the tree and it was 
Keep your focus. Don't keep your focus. Starts people talking. How are these cars for? Well, yeah. it's about keep your focus. We're going to run a campaign and we'll have a conversation. I had plastic brains in clear paint pots on stands on the shop floor. We did a campaign about think about safety. We have signs on our machines that say, this machine has no brain, please use your own. Not just put your gloves on, wear your hat. You have a brain, use your own. So they have some fun with it. And for me, you have to be visual and easily understood. A quick tagline. I think some people have used it in the past, call it a nudge. So that they're constantly getting reminders. So we use the Meerkat way, which was a latitude program. We've adapted it ourselves. We have a full training pack that runs for two years based on that with different campaigns. My strategy for the year is a target on a huge one meter Meerkat. It's stuck all over the shop floor. We've got stickers like that on the back of seats. The people see a Meerkat, they think all for one. They think look after each other. They think do it the right way. Now, when I sit at a, at a, a management level, the indicators. We're talking about how production's gone up. We're talking about how we're getting more orders because we're doing this program at our customers and our suppliers and we're helping them with it so they're giving us more work. Those kind of messages, you know, those kind of safe at work, safe at home, you know, that blending because I think something that's happened to all of us are fairly certain over the last few months is the lines between work and home and vice versa have become quite blurred. So to use those very powerful images you've just provided an insight into, I can, I can, I can see them in my mind's eye now. Those are definitely the messages that should be pushed and re-pushed to help develop people's individual sense of wealth and well-being, which then can underpin the organisation and society moving forward. Yeah, we made posters which basically had what's the alternative, and one picture was a guy mountain biking and the picture below it was a guy in a wheelchair and we, we don't put any explanation we just put the pictures up but it generates a conversation yep. we had a kid playing football with his dad then a kid sitting on a football crying the dad wasn't there various ways we had one lad who was working at home and he was grinding a table outside and the grind wheel shattered and it went through his metal garage door about 20 foot away but one piece actually hit the guy in the head Luckily, because we've done a campaign on working at home and wearing glasses, and we've given everyone a pair of safety-rated sunglasses to take home, he had asked his wife to get his sunglasses out of his car from work before he started the task. And the sunglasses, according to the plastic surgeon, not only saved his eye, saved his life. He's then posting on Twitter and Facebook, thank you, Evie Dennison, for giving me these glasses. We use that to publicise across the site. And he's a walking example of taking home with your works as well, getting that personal touch to it. So really fantastic practical advice there from Kevin and Karen in that last segment. Hopefully, whether in a manufacturing setting or not, there were some snippets of those ideas that you can take away and implement in your own business. I'd like to say a huge thank you to all of our panellists for joining us on these two sessions. If you'd like to listen to both of these webinars in full or plenty more similar sessions, you can do so on demand by clicking on the links in the episode description or by accessing the webinar tab on the top nav of the SHP website. There you will be able to find details of any upcoming live sessions as well. If you've not listened to the previous six episodes of the Safety and Health podcast, please do go back and check those out. Last time we heard from newly appointed Irish President James Quinn. Plus we had some really great tips and advice for people looking for a new role during the pandemic, including how telephone and video interviews differ from face to face, and how to integrate yourself in a new company when working remotely. You can find the link to our SHP podcast hub in the description of this episode. If you like what you hear, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast to get the latest episodes as soon as they're released. 
And we'd be really grateful if you could rate us on Apple Podcasts as that will help us to get the show out to a wider audience. Please do stay tuned to shponline.co.uk for the very latest safety news, where you can also sign up to our daily e-newsletter. Thank you very much for listening and see you on the next episode. Thank you.